Our series uh, in the book of John here for the last four or five weeks as we uh, prepare for Lent next week. And uh, th- this Sunday is very interesting because uh, it's, it's John chapter 4 and it's the story of the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And really what's fascinating about it that I had not ever thought of before, but on the heels of John chapter 3, what we looked at last week, the story of Nicodemus, she is kind of the counter the counterpart to Nicodemus. Whereas Nicodemus is a powerful religious leader, a Jewish religious leader, a man. He has some power and he comes at night. We have the total opposite where we have a Samaritan woman coming and the noonday sun interacting with Jesus. And so it all just kind of uh, is this counter in kind of a beautiful way, and I hope that you'll see that unfold. And what does that mean for us as we think about loving our neighbor and loving people and bringing Jesus into our community and, and, and coming in Jesus' name to our coworkers? What does that look like when we consider uh, these stories, these stories of Jesus interacting with people? And so I want to work through this story. Again, this is a, it's a very long one. I'm not going to go through all of it because it's 42 verses long. So that would be like a three-hour sermon, and nobody has time for that today. Well, maybe we could make time. I don't know. I could test the limits today. But no, we're not going to do that. But believe it or not, this is the longest sustained conversation Jesus has with anyone recorded in the Gospels. With a Samaritan woman. The longest recorded, sustained conversation Jesus has with anyone in the Gospels. So let's work through it together, and it all begins in verse 1. It begins in verse 1 because here we learn that Jesus is leaving Jerusalem, and he's going to go back to his hometown in the north. So Jerusalem is in the southern part of Israel, and he's going to go to the north back to Galilee. And in between the two places is a region called Samaria, where the despised Samaritans live. The despised Samaritans. Samaritans and Jews did not get along. Samaritans were kind of like a, uh, this sounds really derogatory, but I don't know another word, like a half-breed. They were considered like not pure blood. I I see Harry Potter when I think of that. Sorry, forgive me. But like in Harry Potter, you have the like full-blown magicians or uh, wizards from this, from both parents are from a magician family, a wizarding family. And then you have these people who are like, they call them mudbloods. And it's kind of a similar thing going on here where it's like, yeah, you might have some Jewish descent, but we know you're not pure blood Jew. So they, and they have their own kind of ways of worshiping. And so there's this tension between these two communities. And our text tells us that so the tension between the Pharisees and Jesus is ramping up. It says that Jesus, and I thought this was an interesting phrase here that we were talking about in staff meeting. I've never noticed before. Uh, in verse 1, it says, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it wasn't Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. It's an interesting thing. Uh, There's probably a sermon right there just in that one statement that it wasn't Jesus, it was his disciples that were baptizing. But there was this movement happening where people were being baptized. People were turning their lives over to the kingdom of God, to this reality of of new life. And really, uh, if you remember John's message, John the Baptist was about repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And this word repent literally just means in Greek, turn, turn, transform your life. You're going this way, it's the wrong way. Turn and go towards God. Repent. And so this is the message and they're gaining steam. The Jesus movement is gaining momentum. It's gaining steam and it's making the religious leaders uncomfortable. 
You know, it probably made them a little uncomfortable when Jesus walked into the temple, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, and just started flipping tables over. They're like, I don't know about this guy. And so the tension is mounting, so Jesus says maybe the tension is probably similar to what we heard um, in the, in the water into wine story, where he says, my time has not yet come. So the tension is building. He says, now is not the time for the tension to build to where we know the whole story is going. The trajectory is going to the cross. And so he says, let's go back to Galilee, where maybe things can settle down a bit. And he continues his public ministry. But it says he left Judea, and he went back once back more to Galilee, and verse 4 says, now he had to go through Samaria. Now the truth is he didn't have to go through Samaria. There was a way around, but it would take an extra four weeks. Many Jews did this. Many Jews did this. They would say, we don't like these people so much and don't want to uh, make ourselves impure or contaminated by hanging out with those despised people that we'll take an extra four-week journey to go around the other way. But Jesus in this instant, for some reason, it says he had to go through Samaria. So let's pick up in verse 4. We're going to read 4 through 9. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. John's telling us at this moment, it's Jesus and this woman alone at the well. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John, just in case we missed it, in case we missed the tension, adds, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's right there in the text. He's like, hey, if you didn't get it already, this conversation should not be happening. It should not be taking place. And they both know it. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Let me point out a few things uh, just that they give us right there that John gives us in just these first few verses about what's going on in the text. One, it's noon. John has no throwaway words. Nothing John says is a throwaway. If you remember, and I've said this each week, and maybe you're getting tired of me saying it, but remember, John's gospel has a purpose. He says he has collected these particular stories, he's written these particular things down, so that you will know and come to believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you will have life in his name. That's his purpose. You would have life, eternal life in Jesus' name. So none of this is a throwaway. None of this stuff. What is this thing about noon? He comes at noon and he meets this woman at the well. Noon would be the hottest part of the day and this is absolutely the wrong time for somebody to be at the well drawing water. This this little thing would be a nod to the reader of the time, someone who would understand the culture to know that this woman should not be be here unless unless she's specifically there so that she won't interact with anyone else she's there at the time of day when it's the hottest who would go on this journey to gather water at the hottest part of the day no 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 you go in the early morning and it's assumed that the women would travel together and this was kind of a social thing 
And maybe you would go again in the evening, and again, it would be kind of a social thing. You go to the well together. So for some reason, this woman has chosen to go at the part of the day when no one else would be around, when no one else would be there. And again, if you want to contrast last week's story, Nicodemus, he comes during the night. He comes during the darkness, the cover of darkness. He, he doesn't want to be exposed. He maybe doesn't want to let the other Pharisees know that he's curious about this guy, Jesus, so he comes under the cover of night. And John's gospel, as we mentioned last week, has this theme of light and darkness. Step into the light was the call last week. Will Nicodemus step into the light and come to see Jesus and know Jesus and have that eternal life? That is the whole point of John's gospel. But this woman... And Jesus, their interaction happens in the noonday sun. Couldn't be brighter. All the cards are on the table. Nothing can be hidden. Nothing is secret. She comes at noon. The other part of the story is just this woman's identity. Uh, Many commentators have said she has three strikes against her. One, in this culture, she's a woman. She doesn't have power in this culture. This is a patriarchal culture. She, she just doesn't have power. Two, she's a Samaritan. I've already pointed it out. A Samaritan should not be talking to a Jew. And third, she has what we're going to find out later, a tragic story. She has a troubled past. So she's there at this well with three strikes against her, a Samaritan woman with a troubled past, talking to someone she should not be talking to, a Jew. Again, she says, how can you ask me for a drink? She is shocked that this Jewish man, and hang on to this, she is shocked that this Jewish man, who otherwise this would be considered like, he just just defiled himself religiously by hanging out with her. He just made himself religiously unclean by hanging out with her. She's shocked that he would even be in her presence, let alone say, can I have a drink of water that you will provide for me? I mean, that, that, that a Samaritan would like touch this water. He would use her vessel to get water. And I, I knew I was going to untie my shoe. I just knew this was going to happen. Before I trip, I'm going to do this. But she's shocked. She is shocked that he would dare possibly be made unclean by drinking water from her vessel. She knows how this religious system works and she's shocked. But Jesus doesn't seem concerned about all this. Jesus continues the conversation. He's not worried about being contaminated or polluted or made impure by this woman. Instead, Jesus, it seems, and we're going to see this as a theme throughout this entire long conversation, Jesus, at every moment where it seems like maybe it's time for him to go, yeah, see, you're impure and I'm holy. Instead, Jesus leans in and leans in closer and leans in closer where it almost gets more and more awkward and where the disciples come back later and are like, what is going on here? Why is Jesus talking to her? But Jesus leans in. He leans in and he says to her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water. See what Jesus does there, how he flips it, how interesting this is, where he first says, can I have a drink? She says, "Uh, 
I don't think that Jews and Samaritans do this. Are you really asking me for a drink? And Jesus says, if you knew, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me for a drink. And I would have given you living water. Living water. Jesus seems to like these strange metaphors, doesn't he? He's talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is like, Teacher, I know that, that you're a rabbi, that I've seen the things you have done. Only someone from God could do these things. And Jesus says, Yeah, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, Huh? I have to climb into a woman's womb again? Huh? You have a similar metaphor here, this idea of living water. What is going on here? And see, whereas Nicodemus, he gets kind of confused. And again, what's so fascinating about these two stories back to back is Nicodemus, later on, Jesus is like, you're a religious leader and you don't understand these things? And because Nicodemus just kind of walks away and we don't know. It's very ambiguous. We don't know what happens with Nicodemus in that moment. We mentioned last week he shows up again a couple times and seems to be on a journey of maybe finding faith in Jesus. But we don't know. He kind of shrinks back. But this woman, it's, it's just unbelievable. It would have been unbelievable, unbe- literally unbelievable for the first century people to read this story and go, wait, Jesus kept talking to her? She kept, they, they kept talking? And again, she leans in now. This living water thing. Sir, she says, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? See, she's confused by this living water thing. I mean, this would be confusing. First, like I said, he comes and says, can I have a drink? She goes, we shouldn't be doing this whole thing. Are you really asking me for a drink? And he says, oh, if you only knew, I would give you a drink but you don't have anything to get a drink with. What are you? She's thinking literal water, that somehow he's going to provide like magic water or something. I don't know what she's thinking. I can only imagine that she's like, wait, you can like scoop something up, I can put it in my house, and you just keep going to it, and it keeps refilling itself. What? There's this confusion there. Where can you get this living water? Where is it? Are you greater than Jacob? Are you better? What are you saying here, guy? What are you saying? But again, where Nicodemus, he kind of wanted to maintain some control and kind of controlled the conversation, this woman just, she's all in. She's all in. She's desperate. She wants to know something more. And I think there's part of that because of what we're going to learn about her past. She's just seeking more, she's open. She's spiritually open to this conversation, to, to what this guy is talking about. In some ways, I think, where, where she's saying, where can you get this living water, what she's really saying is, I want some of that. I need that. Whatever this living water thing is that will never run out, that's the gift of God, I need that. And the next exchange I think shows us that that's exactly what she's getting at because Jesus answers, everyone who drinks this water, the water from the well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
And she immediately responds, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Give me this water so I don't have to do this walk of shame in the noonday sun. Give me this water you're talking about so I don't have to live this life of misery anymore, walking alone, spending my day in the noonday sun to avoid the gossip, avoid all the social things that she's not a part of, the things that are just a struggle in her life. See, Jesus takes this opportunity knowing her fully, knowing her story because, well, he's Jesus. He does something really strange here at this moment where she's saying, Sir, give me this water. I want that. I need that. And for some reason, Jesus turns this spiritual conversation into a personal conversation. He gets real. He gets personal. He says to her, go, call your husband and come back. Why does he do this? What a strange turn of events. I mean, I have not been in a lot of conversations with random strangers. I think of those airplane conversations I get to have as a pastor. I get to have them. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Where you're like sitting next to that person and you're like, oh, please, Lord, are they going to ask me what I do for a living? Are we going to really do this? Because it goes one of two ways. Somebody either is like, oh, that's bizarro, and they want nothing to do with me the rest of the flight, or, or the airplane seat turns into a confession booth. And I've had this happen where like all of a sudden, you know, I was on a flight to Atlanta a couple years ago. Woman next to me is telling me whole life story about marriages she's had, a kid that the train ran over him and cut his arm off. I'm like, why are you telling me this on the airplane? But it's okay. The Lord said, I'm like, okay. Yeah, I guess, like, cool. But listen, I don't ask for these things. It just happens. But Jesus is asking for it. Go get your husband. Go get your husband and come back. She replies, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. And now he just gets, it's like cringeworthy for me. Like, just he just goes there with her. The fact is, You've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Oh, is he just being mean here? Is he just like turning the knife like, oh, not only am I a Jew and you're a Samaritan, but listen. What is he, do what is he doing here? It's so confusing to me. He gets personal. He gets real. But what's interesting, what some have pointed out in saying this and in doing this, Jesus knows her fully. He obviously knows her story. He knows ahead of time the backstory of this woman. And, and in spite of that, he doesn't pull away. If Jesus knew this from the beginning, if he knew from the beginning not only is she a Samaritan, not only according to their religious rules and customs would he not associate with her, he also knows that she's had this troubled past. He also knows that there's something in her past that has made her ashamed, that's made her there in this noon day sun. He knows that she's a social outcast and yet he continues to pursue her. What, what is he doing here? Why is he doing that? What is he modeling potentially for you and I and continuing to lean in in someone's life that is very messy, 
very imperfect. And yet Jesus doesn't cut and run. He doesn't cut and run. So is it possible that Jesus isn't being cruel here in naming what he knows about her life? He's not being cruel. He's not, he's not taking a shot at her. Oh yeah, that's right. The guy you're living with isn't your husband. Actually, you've been married five times. He's, is it possible he's not taking a shot at her, taking an opportunity to cut her down, but instead is revealing that in spite of the fact that he knows everything about her, he's not going anywhere. That the living water offer is still on the table, even though he knows everything about her. Is it possible that he wants her to know that, that all that stuff of your past, to him, it's just about right now, this interaction, she and him at the well. Do you want this living water? Do you want it? He's offering it to her in spite of what he knows about her past it's fascinating to me that uh, over the years, many people have, have interpreted this story and, and they've actually done something that I think is, uh, well, kind of wrong. And that is that they have implied that this woman, man, she just must be a dirty, disgusting, terrible sinner, maybe even a prostitute. They've just taken all these kind of licenses with this story and made her into just a terrible person. When in reality, the text doesn't say why she's had five husbands. It doesn't say why. It's possible, as I've done more reading on this, it's possible that uh, the truth of the matter is women in that culture did not have the power to divorce their husbands. So for some reason, she has been left five times. Is she a widow? Is it possible that she is unable to have children? And as each successive husband finds that out, they go, nothing to do with you. It's possible that this woman's, it's not just tainted by sin and immorality, but that her story is just tragic. And Jesus takes all that in and says, in spite of the tragedy of your story, in spite of the rough life, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. In fact, Jesus kind of shows he's all in on this conversation. He's all in. He, he, he says to her that he can't be made impure. He's saying in, in, in essence here, Jesus can't be made impure by her. No, Jesus actually does the reverse. He can make people pure who are unclean. Stay with me on this. This is really fascinating. I want to kind of carry this through the rest of the message. There's this... This idea psychologically called negativity dominance. I've talked about this before, and it's been a while now uh, that I've mentioned it. And it, it's tied to this uh, thing where we have like a disgust psychology. And, and the greatest example of this disgust thing that I can think of, and this is kind of a gross example, but I like to tell it anyway, <laughs> is people, uh, psychologists, researchers, have asked people to take a Dixie cup, maybe you remember me talking about this before, and spit into the Dixie cup. Okay? And at that moment, people were like, okay, no big deal. Then they will tell them, drink the contents of the Dixie cup. Now, not you drink the content, my, your own. And people just kind of go like, oh, like I even heard, uh, oh, up here just of the idea of spitting alone. <laughs> like, oh my, oh, come on, are you serious? And then researchers will quickly tell those people, friends, you drink your own spit all day long. And you're never disgusted by it. So there's something with this negativity dominance and disgust psychology where it's when something is other, when now it's outside of us and we can see it and it's different, it becomes icky. 
And so they had these things in this culture where clearly this Samaritan woman was other and icky and not like us and bad and keep them away because just one person from that community comes into our community, the whole thing's ruined. And that's the idea of negativity dominance is like one drop. Another graphic example, forgive me. Let's say you have a swimming pool full of the greatest, most fine wine that anybody could ever enjoy. But then someone says, it can all be yours. But you need to know, we accidentally dropped one tiny drop of urine in there. For many people, just knowing that that is in there alone will be like, I'm done, I'm out. I don't want any of it. I don't want any of it. That's the idea of negativity dominance. We have things like one bad apple will spoil the whole cart, right? These sayings of like one bad seed ruins the whole crop. This idea of negativity dominance. And so this psychologically led their culture at the time to push people away. Jesus, in this total reversal, in a total reversal, seems to just say, I don't care about any of that. I know everything about this woman. I know she's a Samaritan. I know she's a woman. I know about her past, and I am leaning in. It seems as though Jesus believes that there's something, maybe a positivity dominance. That when it comes to following Jesus, there's a positivity dominance. That Jesus in someone's life, Jesus' presence and encounter with Jesus can can clean all that up. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So Jesus looks at this woman who wants living water and says, even though I know everything about your life, how exceedingly difficult your life has been, I'm not going anywhere. And he leans in a little further. They're there in the noonday sun, now literally All the cards are on the table. Nothing is hidden anymore. Everything has been exposed. Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And now, for some reason, she's the one who switches gears at this point. And and to be honest, maybe I would have too if somebody just told me everything about myself and you're like, this is super awkward. Let's talk about something else. So she switches it really quickly to say, sir, uh, I can see you're a prophet. So uh, she she was talking about worship all of a sudden. This is an interesting switch here. So he just told her everything about herself. And she says, Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she senses something, and now she's leaning in. You're a prophet. She leans in. See, there's something about him revealing who she was and still staying present with her that makes her lean in as well. And go, oh, you're taking me seriously. You're listening to my story. You're not running like everyone else. You're not gossiping like everyone else. You're still here. Now she says, you must be a prophet. And she moves the conversation to worship. And Jesus responds, woman, believe me. Another one of these times where Jesus is like, woman. I don't know what that's about. He says, woman, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. There's probably a whole sermon right there as well, but no time today. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship 
in the Spirit and in truth. One commentator writes about this little, this little exchange, this strange exchange within this large conversation. It says, to her surprise, Jesus does not debate her. He doesn't, he doesn't enter into a debate about where they should really worship. He declares that true worship of God is not geographically defined, but is defined by God's own nature, which is spirit and truth. And actually, here's what's fascinating. Here's where it all starts to come together. Jesus is actually connecting this back to the living water thing. He's actually connecting this back when he starts using the language of true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. There's another time in John's gospel where we hear about this living water business, and it comes in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, Jesus is having this conversation. He starts talking about living water again. And he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. John adds this kind of commentary then. The gospel writer says, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. This living water thing that Jesus is talking about again in in John chapter 7 and he just talked about in John chapter 4, that that I can give you living water, living water that will never be consumed, never end, will keep flowing from within you. This living water, do you want it? Do you want it? John says, hey, hey reader, he's talking about the Spirit. He's talking about the Spirit of God who will come and live within you. For those who believe in Christ, the Spirit, God himself dwelling within the believer. The Spirit of God that never runs out. That never runs out. But then you make the jump and you say, oh, so Jesus does this crazy thing of this positivity dominance. How is he able to do that? Because I don't know that we want to be, I don't know that we can do that, right? That's just too hard for us. And I wonder if there's not a clue or a hint in the text if it's possible that the only way to do as Jesus did in this situation is to, for us to get that living water. For us to have the Holy Spirit. That it's the Holy Spirit who allows us to step into messy situations and say, I'm here. And I believe you can, whatever is going on in your life, it, it's not going to contaminate me. It's not, I have the Spirit. How could, I, how could I be made impure by having a conversation with you, with you, with you? It's the Spirit living within us that allows Christians to step into really messy, complicated situations and say, we're here. Because we believe that the Spirit of God living in us is stronger than any other spiritual influence in this world if there are other spiritual influences whatever that looks like that the spirit of god in us that's it and so we bring the spirit with us into these conversations and so there's an author that i got all of this stuff about the the negativity dominance and positivity dominance his name is richard beck he uh, every now and then speaks at fuller uh, seminary he has a prison ministry which has deeply impacted his understanding of theology and the gospel uh, he has this book called unclean which is just fabulous on this very topic. If any of this really resonates with you and you want to go deeper, it's called Unclean. 
Here's what he says about all of this to tie it to what does it mean if Jesus does this for now us, the believers, to do this with the Spirit of God living within us 2,000 years later? What does this look like? He says what is striking about the gospel accounts is how Jesus reverses negativity dominance. Jesus is, to coin a term, positivity dominant. Contact with Jesus purifies. And so he says a missional church, if we want to be a church on the mission of Jesus, a missional church embraces this same reversal, following Jesus into the world without fear of contamination. And he says, but it's important to note, this is a deeply counterintuitive position to take. Nothing in our experience suggests that this should be the case. So the missional church will always be swimming against the tide of disgust psychology, always tempted to separate, withdraw, or quarantine. That's the challenge. We see, we hear this story and we go, yeah, way to go, Jesus! You went into this messy situation, you loved this lady that nobody would love, yeah, Jesus is the best. Okay, church, you do it too. Yeah, Jesus! What are you asking me to do? How could I do that? Well, the only way we can do it again is through the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit that just overflows in abundance, that pours out and overwhelms, overwhelms the negative in others. Think about this. Because I don't know if we always think about Think about this. We believe for ourselves, at least I do, Think about yourself. We believe for ourselves that the Spirit has overwhelmed the negative in us. We're not perfect. That's not what I'm saying. The Holy Spirit doesn't make us perfect and we don't float on air and we're not, you know, walking on water. But we believe that the things that we have done, those negative things that the Spirit overcome, that Jesus has overcome those things. We believe that for us, for per- our, ourselves. But how often do we believe that that same spirit can overwhelm the negative in others? Or do we often look at others and go, man, glad I'm not like them. I, I have to say, my, as a young person, my faith was so much about the comparison game. At least I'm not like them. You know, I go to the parties, but I don't drink like those guys. That, I, that was my, my faith growing up. At least I'm not like them. Instead of looking at like, what if the Spirit could, could come into this entire place and change all these lives? What would that look like for all of us? Not just, well, I've got it. And so we will be swimming against this tide. But I think it's the Jesus way. And we're called, if we have this living water, to share it and to allow it to overflow. We're called to do as Jesus did, to walk into situations and say, do you want some living water? Because we have it, and it's not just for us, but it's to share. Now to wrap this up, the ending of this conversation, if you want your mind further blown, they're still engaged in this conversation They're talking about worship. They're talking about worshiping in the Spirit and truth. And she says to him, maybe somewhat confused about this stuff, she finally says, well, I I know that the Messiah is coming. 
And when he comes, he'll explain all of this to us. So maybe she's a bit overwhelmed now at this point and going like, oh my gosh, who is this guy and what are we really talking about here? And she says, hey, okay, hey buddy, here's a common thing between Jews and Samaritans. We both believe the Messiah will come and when he comes, he'll set it all right. Okay, amen? Oh man, enough for today. Enough for today. And maybe at a moment in any other story where that's the end of the story in the Gospels, that's just it. The person says something, you know, like you go back a couple weeks and Jesus says like, you know, tear this temple down and I'll build it back up in three days. And they just look at him and go like, uh, dude, it took us 46 years to build this. That ain't happening. End of the story. That's it. That's all we have. That's the story. In this one, you might think this is going to be the end of the story. This is it right here. This is going to walk away, and you go like, oh, but she missed it. No. Jesus does something totally bizarro right here. He does something totally bizarro, totally mind-blowing. He says to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I don't know what I would do in that moment. Guys, this is the first, this is the first person Jesus openly reveals his identity to. A despised Samaritan woman with a troubled story. What is he doing? This is not the way this was supposed to play out. This is not, what is he doing? I mean, his disciples have inklings of who he might be. John the Baptist even has some inklings, but we see in Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist, he's in prison and he's, he's sending out messengers. Hey, can you just clarify with Jesus that he is the one? Because it's like put me in prison for this whole thing and I'd like to know. But Jesus, he reveals himself to this Samaritan woman. I am the Messiah. Again, if if you were questioning whether Jesus was thinking like, you know, let's create some distance between people like this and the Jesus movement, he's all in. Fully revealing who he is, fully offering living water to her, fully offering all that God has, saying "It's, it's, it's for you you Samaritan three strikes against you person it's for you that's why I'm here for you whoa and she's so caught up in this that the final scene we don't have time because another 20 verses telling the story the final scene has her leaving her water pot running to town and saying I think I found the Messiah this guy told me everything about my life She's like the first evangelist. She tells all of her people the good news of Jesus, and they come out to find Jesus. Friends, I, I wonder if this is the call for us. If, if, we, if we think about what does this mean for you and for me, if we are to be like Jesus in these moments, that we believe that the Spirit living within us, that living water, the Spirit that is like living water, can be poured out on our community, what would that look like? can be poured out in your workplace. What would that look like? Poured out in your family, your friends, your neighbors. What does that look like? Who are those people that you're going, not them though? No way. What if? The people that maybe were a little afraid, and like, I, don't, I don't know that I want to interact with them. And we have this story where Jesus says, yeah. Yeah, even them. Those are the very people that Jesus is longing to reveal himself to. And it blows my mind every time. Would you pray with me?
God, what a story. What an amazing example of how much you love people. God, no matter how much, how much you love people, no matter their stories, no matter their, even dare we say, their religion, their background, their sex, their gender, their nationality, their race, Lord, you love them all. You love us all. So much so that you're willing, you're willing to do something that everyone else, God, would have looked like you're polluting yourself, you're contaminating yourself. What are you doing, they would have asked, and yet you said, yeah, that's how much I love them all. God, that's how much you love us. That's how much you love us. That while we were still sinners, while we were still unable to save ourselves, you came, you died, that we might have eternal life. What a story. What a truth. God, help us as we consider that story, as we consider your example Help us to do the same. Holy Spirit, come and take residence in us in such a way that we are aware of your presence in our lives, Holy Spirit, and that we are confident that you are there and and, and that there's enough to pour out to others, that it'll never run out. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for what you have done in us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for our closing song.